Okay, so back in 2019, I think it was, uh, might have been a different year, but I'm pretty sure it's 2019, there was this, this group that took a survey of a whole bunch of Catholics from around the United States. So a whole bunch of Catholic Christians, I don't know the number, but it was a significant number so that they could feel relatively confident in, their, uh, in the results of their survey. And they asked these people uh, various questions, you know, about, about specifically about Mass. Um, so, you know, how often do you come to Mass? Do you come every Sunday? Do you, do you uh, come occasionally? Do you come sometimes? Um, do you come only on holidays? Do you, do you come at all? You know, the, the, so that was a question. They asked them about what happens at Mass. They asked them about what the church teaches about what happens at Mass. So they asked them, okay, well, when the priest um, celebrates the Eucharist, when he prays the prayer, what is it that the church teaches that happens in that moment? Does the church teach that there's a change, like, like Jesus says, this is my body, and so does the church teach that the bread changes into his body, into his blood and soul and divinity? Does the church teach that the, the wine changes into his body, blood, soul, and divinity? Or does the church teach that it's just symbolic, that, that it's a symbol of his body and blood, but not actually his body and blood? Or do, do you not know, right? So those are kind of the three options. And then from that point of asking what, the, what they thought the church taught or teaches, they then said, but what do you believe? Do you believe that the, body, the bread and the wine change into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus? Do you believe that it's just symbolic? Or maybe you don't know what you believe. So they asked those questions. They probably asked other questions, but the, the survey, the big sort of headline results of the survey centered around those three questions. Your, your regular mass attendance, what does the church teach about what happens here in the Eucharist, this thing that we call the Eucharist, and what do you believe about it? And uh, the results, the, the numbers were, were quite staggering, um, actually. So the, the, the results were it was something like 25% of American Catholic Christians go to mass every Sunday. Um, and that, that number, as I understand it, actually is even, it's lower now. So my buddy, Father Vasek, over in Thief River, he spent a year working for the bishops of the United States of America. And um, he, he said that the number is now more like 13 or 11% of Catholic Christians in the United States attend Mass every Sunday. Which that number, like, like I said, that number is rather staggering because coming to Mass every Sunday in Holy Day of Obligation, this is one of the minimum requirements that we have as Catholics to be considered practicing active Catholics. So, so that in itself is like, okay, well, that's, that's something. But, but in so many ways, anyone who's paying attention knows this, right? And, I mean, maybe don't want, no, we don't know the exact number, but we, know, we all know plenty of people who don't come to Mass and don't seem to have any problem with not coming to Mass. So that's, that's not surprising. Uh, what turned out to be surprising was the results of the other two questions. So um, to, to be clear about this, let's, I'll, I'll give a clear teaching or a clear explanation just briefly because we're going to spend the entire month going into depth about what we believe. But just really clear, the church teaches that when the priest prays the prayer at the altar, the bread and the wine change completely into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. We, we, we teach this by a miracle of God's grace. When the priest says the words of Jesus, it is like Jesus speaking through the priest. And he changes them, even though they still look and smell and taste and feel like bread and wine. The church teaches that there's no more bread and there's no more wine on the altar when that prayer is prayed. So that's, that's what the church teaches. Uh, we'll, we'll get in, like I said, we'll get more in depth in it in, in, in this homily, in the homilies that are to come for the rest of the month, but, but that's what the church teaches. So the staggering thing was that as far as, as uh, belief goes, Catholics answered to this survey. They said that something like 30% of Catholics believe that. 30% of Catholics believe what the church teaches about the Holy Eucharist. 
So only 30% of, of Catholic Christians in America believe that the bread and the wine change into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. The rest either didn't believe it or they didn't really know what they believed. And so when the bishops saw the results of this study, when they were published, they, they were like alarmed, you know, as, as though it was like this big surprise to them. Like, I can't believe people don't believe in this. And so they, they thought to themselves, we gotta, we gotta find a way to, to, to get that number up. We gotta find a way to revive Eucharistic belief and faith in our country. And so we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But to me, there was actually a more attention-grabbing number. To me, the, the, the number that was more attention-grabbing was the second question. Of when they asked, what does the church teach happens here? So as far as Catholic Christians in the United States who took that survey, only 50% of them could accurately explain what the church teaches. That to me is more staggering because I can't force you to believe this. I can't force anybody to believe what we teach, what we believe as what we teach as Catholic Christians. I can't force that. But, but if as a church leadership, the way that we teach ends up with only 50% of our members being able to communicate accurately what we teach. That to me is a huge failure on the leadership's part. Like what the heck have we been doing that half of our members don't even know what we teach? You know, like I, in my mind, the ideal is, well, the ideal is everyone would believe it, but, but this, the next step down from that would be like, well, everybody at least knows what we teach and then they can make their decision from there. So, so to me, there's like, yes, we need revival, but the revival, I think, yes, it, it definitely includes like, how can we get more people to believe this? But to me, the revival is how can we teach in such a way that people at least know what, in a clear way, what we believe? That to me is, is the purpose of, of this revival. So anyway, so the bishops, they, they launched this thing called the Eucharistic Revival. It's a three-year thing, and we've actually been in the, middle, in the midst of it for a year and a half. I haven't talked very much about it, maybe in, in a couple of different ways when I talk about the Eucharist, but, but I haven't explicitly spoken about the Eucharistic Revival. Uh, but, but we're in it. The first year of the revi revival was supposed to be focused on things from a diocesan point of view. So in other words, every diocese around the country was supposed to come up with its own initiatives to offer to the general public uh, of, of people around their diocese. Um, so we did that. And now we're in the middle of our parish year. In fact, we just started our parish year, so we're not that far behind. Um, so anyway, so now it's for the parishes, each parish, to come up with, with different ideas as far as how can we help people come to a deeper love, a deeper appreciation, a deeper belief in what we teach as Catholic Christians, what we believe. So, so that's it. So, but with the parish year, Bishop Cousins, our bishop, has requested that we do a couple of things across the diocese uh, for every parish. Among those things are things that I've, I've mentioned already. So uh, among those things are taking greater silence during mass, especially after communion, which, which makes sense actually, because if you think about it, right, if this is true, if it's true, so whether you believe it or not, that's, that's for you to figure out. But if it's true that this really does change into the body and blood of Jesus, then those who receive Holy Communion who are able to receive in a state of grace, like that seems like it would really lend itself well to taking time for silent prayer. You know, like Jesus in his body and his blood enters into my body, mingles himself with my blood and my soul. <laughs> I, I'm not that interested in singing. <laughs> I'm not that interested in looking around to see what other people are doing. Right? I'm interested in like turning inward and being with Jesus in that way. So Bishop has required or requested that we all take at least two minutes of silence after communion. 
So what we're going to do in our parishes, because we have small parishes and communion doesn't take that long, we're just going to skip the communion hymn and we're going to take, it's going to end up being about five minutes of silent prayer. And I put in your pews uh, some prayer cards if you need that prayer time to be guided prayer. Just some prayer cards that, that after you receive communion, you can go back to your pew and you can kneel down or, you know what, if you, if you want to sit, like don't, this is the thing. I know so many times after communion, people just watch the priest to see like, what's father doing? And then when he sits down, I'll sit down. Don't let yourself be distracted by that. If you want to get back to your pew and you just want to sit so you're not distracted, that's fine. We'll, we'll, we'll let that go. Um, but, or you can just kneel the whole time. That's fine too. Uh, but anyway, to let yourself just be caught up in this, this beautiful gift of Jesus being inside of you. Okay, so, so that's one thing, to spend extra time in silence. The second thing is what we're doing here, the preaching series, to change the readings for Mass and to talk about the Eucharist in five consecutive homilies, highlighting different aspects about what we believe about this that takes place here at this altar and every altar, Catholic altar around the world. And this, this is so important because, because this is one of the things that separates us from other Christians, from non-Catholic Christians, from our Protestant brothers and sisters, our evangelicals, our, our non-denominational people. This separates us from them. And if we're not clear about this, then what ends up happening is we end up with a whole bunch of people in our church and in other churches saying, well, you know, we're all basically the same, so it doesn't matter if I go to Catholic church or if I go to Lutheran church or, or non-denominational, or it doesn't really matter if I go at all. Right, so we end up with that, that kind of a problem, but, but we as Catholic Christians believe that we are the church, the church that Jesus established, and they're not. And that doesn't, like, that, we're not talking about their salvation in the moment, but, but we believe that we're the church that Jesus established. And, and if, if this is truly what we teach that it is, then that actually makes a world of difference because we also teach that they don't have it, right? So it's, it's really important for us to be clear about this. So, so that's, that's like what, what the purpose of the series is. And, and I have, you know, just a couple of hopes for this. Uh, the, one of them is, is up to me and the other is not up to me. It's kind of up to you and up to you and the Lord. The hope for me, from my perspective, is just simply to teach things very clearly, to not overcomplicate things, but to try to be clear about what it is that we believe takes place here in a, in a number of different facets, another, from a, a number of different angles. So that's, that's my hope, to try to be really clear so that, so that if we all got that survey, we could all answer it the same as far as what the church teaches. The second hope is that you would believe it but again, I can't force you to believe it. That's, that's for you and the Lord to figure out. And if, if you're hearing me teach and preach and you're just like, I don't know if I buy that. Okay, well, that's fine. But you have a duty and obligation to, to investigate this, to, to actually get into the scriptures and read them and to study what, is, what have Christians throughout history believed about what takes place in, in our, our worship of God. Um, so I, ca I can't force you to believe that. But, but if you believe it, my hope is that it would increase your devotion to the Eucharist. It would increase your love for, the, for Jesus in the Eucharist. It would increase your commitment to coming to Mass, not just on Sundays, but maybe even other days if you're able to. It would, it would increase your devotion, your, your loyalty to Jesus in the Eucharist, to not stray into any other Christian denominations. That, that's my hope. Uh, but, but again, that's, that's, that's more for you, actually, than it is for me. Okay, now, now with that, we, we want to move into our homily for this week. So this, this one will be a little bit shorter because we're already 11 minutes in, and, and that's okay. Um, so here's what's going on. So in our first reading, we heard about this from Exodus chapter 12. So Exodus chapter 12 is, is of course, the, the story of the Passover lamb. For, for the Jewish people, the Israelites, but, but even for Jewish people today, I don't know if they have chapters and verses in their scriptures, because obviously they don't have the New Testament, so I don't, I don't know what they do with their chapters and verses. But, but they would all know, they all know, like the back of their hand, Exodus chapter 12. For them, this is the story of their salvation. 
Hopefully we know the story that, that before this time or at this time even, the people are enslaved in Egypt and Pharaoh is treating them terribly. He's killing their children. He's forcing them to do manual labor. He's, he's just treating like he's not, he's not interested in letting them go free. Even though right now, by this point, Moses has been at work. The Lord has been at work through Moses with the plagues, nine of the plagues. And this one that we heard about, the Passover lamb, the death of the firstborn son, is the 10th of the plagues. And so the Lord is going to work to bring freedom to his people, and he gives instructions for his people so that they can be saved from slavery, so that they can be preserved from the tragedy that is about to come from all of those who do not believe in God, who don't have faith in the Lord God. So he gives these instructions about this Passover lamb, how every family is supposed to take a lamb that is a year-old male that is unblemished. A male lamb that is unblemished. It can't have diseases. It can't have broken bones. It can't have like spots in its wool. It's got to be a perfect lamb. That lamb, they're supposed to take it and slaughter it, to sacrifice it. And then from that sacrifice, to take its blood and put it on the outside of their doorposts and then eat the lamb's flesh. And then at the end, the Lord gives an instruction about a memorial feast. So, so this, this goes on uh, exactly as it, as it plays out. The people do what they're supposed to do, provided they believe that the Lord is going to come, th- come through for them. So they take the, the perfect lamb, they slaughter it, they put the blood on the doorpost, and they eat its flesh. And then that night, the Lord goes through and he carries out his plan, his judgment on all the false gods of Egypt, as he says that he will. The Egyptians wake up to their horror of what has taken place. They beg them to go. And as they go, the people run into the Red Sea and then they cross through the Red Sea into the desert where they are now set free from their slavery. So because of their obedience to the Lord with the Passover lamb, the people are set free from physical slavery in Egypt. That's that's an incredible thing. And then every year after that, so as to fulfill what God has required of the memorial feast, every year after that, they would celebrate the Passover meal. And, And what we have to understand is this, that when he says a memorial feast, what our minds tend to go toward is like, oh yeah, I remember, you know, back then when this thing happened and I, I you know, some of the details are a little fuzzy, but, but I remember that it happened. That's, that's what we tend to remember or think of. But when the Lord is talking about a memorial feast here, the word in Hebrew, it's, it's anamnesis or anamnesis, however you want to pronounce it, if, if you can even pronounce it. But, uh, but so like, it's this idea of a memorial that, that is stronger than just a, an average memory. It's, it's a memorial in such a way that I remember it so deeply, so strongly, that it actually, it's like it becomes present to me. That, that it's not just what happened back then, but it's what's happening now. In fact, I'm, I'm reading a book right now about the Jewish roots of the, the Eucharist, and it talks about this. It says, um, in every generation, a man must so regard himself as if he came forth himself out of Egypt. For it is written, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came forth out of Egypt, right? So, so they're, they're offering of this memorial feast. It's not what happened back then, but somehow by God's grace, the memory brings it forward to the future so that as they celebrate the Passover year after year after year after year, it, it, it doesn't look exactly the same as the first Passover. There, there are different developments. There are things that they add. In fact, at the end of our gospel, it says that they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. They started singing songs during the Passover and reciting psalms and these kinds of things. So it doesn't look exactly the same, but the memory is so strong that when they partake of the Passover lamb, it's like they're eating the very first lamb that was sacrificed. They're eating the flesh of the lamb, which sets them free from slavery. So that's, that's what's going on. And so this, of course, continued all the way into the time of Jesus. And, and this, this is important. It's super important because the Bible is really clear that the Last Supper, the Last Supper was a Passover meal. 
It's, it's so important that we understand this. So what's going on? At the Last Supper, there would have been expectations that they would have eaten the flesh of a lamb, that that lamb would have been without blemish, and that this lamb was a celebration, a memorial, a, a, a re-entering into the moment where they were set free from slavery. Okay, now that's, that's so important because we look at the Last Supper and what do we see? Well, we see Jesus leading the meal. Who is Jesus? We find out in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist sees Jesus and he points at him. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus is perfect. He is the Lamb of God. And at the Last Supper, what does he say? He takes bread and he says, this is my body. Eat it. This is my blood. Drink it. What's he giving them to eat? He's giving them the flesh of the Lamb. Jesus is the new Passover Lamb. And by eating of that flesh, he's doing what? He's setting them free from sin. Not, not freedom from physical slavery necessarily, but, but Paul gets this. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that our sinful body might be done away with, that we might no longer be in slavery to sin. By eating the flesh of Jesus, who is the new Passover lamb, who is the perfect, unblemished, male Passover lamb, by eating his flesh, and sprinkling his blood on the doorposts of our souls, what? We're being set free from slavery. And then he says what? We hear this every Mass. He says, do this in memory of me. Just as back in Exodus 12, the Lord commands them to institute a memorial feast, a ritual feast for the Passover. Jesus too commands his apostles to institute a memorial feast for the Last Supper. So that throughout Christian history now, whenever Christians have gathered for worship, specifically when, whenever Catholics have gathered for worship, what do they do? They, they believe that by, when the priest says the words that Jesus says at the Last Supper, when the priest says those words, it's not the priest, but it is Jesus himself speaking, changing the body, the bread, into his flesh. So that those who receive, who are able to receive in a state of grace, they're eating the flesh of the new Lamb of God and drinking his blood. That's, that's what's going on. Like something incredible, some sort of a mystery is taking place here that, that when we come to Mass, we're, we're not just doing symbolic things, but when we come to Mass, Christians have believed, a majority of Christians have believed this throughout history, that we're entering into the past which becomes present to us as though for the first time we are sharing in this beautiful sacrifice. This is the kind of thing that, that we have to let ourselves understand it's the kind of thing that we have to let ourselves be caught up into. We have to sort of let ourselves ask this question, like, do I believe this? Because this is the kind of thing that's worth living for. If this is true, that, that the bread and the wine are changed into the flesh and blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, if that's true, and that, that when I receive it in a state of grace, I'm set free from, from slavery to sin, which means I don't have to sin anymore. If that's true, I can't think of anything better. That's the kind of thing that's worth changing my life over. That's the kind of thing that, that just says, okay, whatever I got to do to get that, I want that because I want to be a part of this, this memorial feast.
I, I don't want to let anything get in the way. I don't, I, I'm ready to change my schedule. I'm ready to change my plans. I'm ready to change my mind. I'm ready to change whatever my behavior. I'm ready to change whatever I need to because, because this is the mystery of all mysteries. It's the kind of mystery that sets me free, not just freedom in like a physical kind of sense that I can suddenly do whatever I want, but freedom in the spiritual kind of sense so that I don't have to be bogged down by selfishness. I don't have to be bogged down by insecurity or anxiety or fear or, or depression I don't have to be bogged down by anything of that, of that nature anymore, but instead I can be set free to give myself to the Lord. That's, that's a mystery that's, that's just worth pondering. And so I just invite you, if you're able to come forward and receive communion when you do that today, to, just to know this is what we teach you that you're receiving, and, and I invite you to believe it. Uh, and if you don't, that's okay, wrestle with it, but, but really bring that to the Lord and really wrestle with it and really let yourself wonder about it. Like, this is what we teach. This is what we believe. And maybe you've believed it for years and years, and that's great if, if that's you. Maybe some of you are hearing it as though for the first time, and that's fine too, or anything in between. But, but this is the mystery of the Eucharist. It's just one aspect of it, actually. There's, there's more to come over the next four Sundays, a beautiful mystery for us to meditate and reflect upon.